Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. I am Greg Gregory, and we're fortunate to have with us a friend of mine today, Nate Brown. Wow. Nate, it's good to see you again. Good to see you, Greg. Thank you so much for having me on today. I've been very excited for this one. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a little fun today because Nate and I haven't seen each other in a little while. Uh, between the pandemic and conferences and our paths, we used to cross at least twice a year, sometimes three times. And lately, we haven't crossed at all. So it's good to see you again. Glad to see you're still sporting the hat, the beard, and the very um, mild-colored shirt, as I would say. <laughs> it's the and only way I know. For those who are listening right now, you really should pop in to see the video version of this. <laughs> so it's kind of cool, Nate. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks to Veronica Rose, the, the support director at WB Games, for this amazing shirt. Uh, it was quite the gift. <laughs> Oh, so Nate, I want to get started. Let me just give a little introduction for those folks who may not be familiar with you. Um, Nate and I share one common thing. We're both perpetual students. Uh, we were just talking offline. And of course, I said that uh, I love to learn, but I hated school. And I think Nate, I think you kind of like school and still love to learn. So <laughs> it all works both ways for you there. Nate is a perpetual student of the world's greatest experience. And that is people who, and with the people who create them. Having spent the first decade of his career managing a complex technical support environment for occupational health and e-learning software, Nate transitioned to customer experience in 2015. Now, when you talk about customer experience, Nate is one of the leaders in the industry in all of that. After authoring the CX Primer, Brown, Nate has also been dubbed as the CX Influencer of the Year by Cloud Cherry in 2019 and a top global customer experience leader by organizations including ICMI, SurveySensum, and Litmus World. As a passion project, just on the side, Nate created the CX Accelerator, a first-class virtual community for customer experience professionals. And let's face it, with the pandemic, the virtual is the buzzword for the last 18 to 24 months. Currently, Nate serves as the chief executive experience, I'm sorry to say chief executive, listen to me there, <laughs> the chief experience officer for Officium Labs and can be found at a variety of conferences speaking, on, speaking and training on the customer experience topics he absolutely loves. Wow. Nate, great background. Uh, again, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. We're excited to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for the bio there. It's, uh, it's flattering words. And yeah, it's been a great ride these past few years. You know, I've, I've definitely been uh, learning a lot, uh, especially these past two years through Officium Labs and the great clients that we get to serve there. Uh, so I, I just love this world of customer experience. You know, I feel like life is made up of experiences and we might as well make them incredible. Right. I mean, the experiences are absolutely there and the way things tend to build around them. You know, um, why is, let's start with this. Why is the customer experience, and there is a difference between customer service and customer experience. Would you agree? For sure. It's very different. So let, let's go ahead and talk about the difference between customer service and customer experience in your eyes. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about customer service, which is definitely a part of customer experience, it, it's going to generally, especially traditionally, be where something was broken and now you have to fix it. it it's that moment in time where the experience has been uh, compromised to some degree, and now it's time to come in and restore the, the experience design. Uh, so CX is the thoughts and perceptions that we have towards an organization. That's a paraphrased Forrester definition there. So it's, it's feelings, it's perceptions, it's, it's very subjective, it's very artistic in a lot of ways, but there's so much science in there as well. And so the, the overall thoughts and perceptions that somebody have, it, it's going to be made up of these different critical touch points. And one of those is likely to be a customer service experience. But customer service is here, CX is here. And so we want to make sure that we think about those a little differently. And again, for those who are listening right now, the customer experience is an overarching umbrella, if you will. Is that a good way to look at that? Yes, it is an umbrella. Yes. And that, that's, that's so critical to recognize. And again, the experience talks about the feelings that people have when they have an interaction with your organization. Um, and so that, that's absolutely key. So tell me, Nate, where does this come from for you? Where does this love of customer experience come from? So walk us through, you know, you started off uh, working years ago in, in the areas that we talked about in the bio, but let's talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. Yeah. So I was attempting to sell postage meters on the streets of Jacksonville, Florida, and realized a few things about myself. Wasn't a very good salesperson. And uh, love serving people. Those that had the postage meter, I could come in and expand that relationship and just, just love on them in any way that I could in terms of making sure that they were very happy and satisfied with, with the partnership there. I, I loved that. And so the next role that I pursued as I moved to Nashville was in customer service and, and made a career out of that. You know, 10, 12 years in, in that customer service realm, uh, mostly inside of peer safety, what later became UL, Underwriters Laboratories. It was able to grow into a, a leadership position, had three different teams uh, that, that comprised the support department and uh, learned so much through that cycle, uh, but did at some point just become a, a, the feeling like a victim of the fact that so much stuff was rolling downhill into the customer service environment. And we weren't at that time being proactive to think about how can we try to avoid or mitigate some of these issues? How can we think bigger in terms of the design and be more proactive in the way that we think about and serve our customers. And the word I was looking for it was, was customer experience. And as soon as I found it, this, this beautiful concept and the power that, that was inside of it, I just consumed everything that I could and still am, you know, still on that mm -hmm. high, just in terms of how incredible this, this force of nature is around how can we how can we design something remarkable for our customers? Be proactive in the way that we engage them and learn from them, take in their voice of customer feedback, and ultimately become more intelligent in our in our cycle of of production of new services and products. And and also, you know, in terms of the employee part, uh, and I know we're going to talk about that a lot on this podcast, Greg. But uh, really anchoring all of this, the experience first is the one inside of the organization that extends outward as a gift to the customers right. and. I was always a huge culture person, always a huge team builder type of person. So the fact that CX combined the thing I love around customer service and the thing I love around culture building and team building and into this one, this one uh, role, really, this, this idea of a chief experience officer, it, it thrills me to no end. You know, and it's interesting you say that, and it's something that I've been a part of for years, is we have to first start serving, and the keyword serving, our colleagues 
as customers and treating them that way. Uh, I had a vice president years ago in the mortgage banking industry uh, say, there is no such thing as the internal customer. We're all partners and we all serve the external customer, but we still have to serve our partners. And that's absolutely critical. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the way that we should be thinking about it more and more. I mean, it's, it's amazing how powerful it is. And Simon Sinek has some great language around this in terms of, of creating a tribe internally that is protecting one another. You know, we don't win with the, the sharpness of our swords. We, we win with the strengths of our shields as we create a circle of safety around one another. Uh, as soon as you have a competitive environment internally, where you're having to watch your back from your own peers, you're not going to be able to focus any energy at all on the actual competition outside of the organization. So much of your mental energy is going to be focused on self-preservation. So when we can excel beyond that and start to think about how can we work together to do something amazing for our customers and for our communities, uh, that does really all start with great teams. Great. And that, that, that in turn drives the culture, which then in turn drives the, the, uh, the customer's experience, which comes back. And then we get recognized, then whether it's uh, outward recognition or inward recognition, we start to feel better about everything. And it just, it, it's a snowball effect going uphill in a positive way, if you will. An uphill snowball, that would be a thing to see. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, tell me about this. Why is it we've touched on it a little bit here, but why is the employee's experience so critical to the customer experience? Yeah. I mean, think about how shallow of a pursuit it is. If an organization is always talking about what we are doing for our customers and we're, we're creating these, these unique experiences for them, we're making sure that we're listening to everything that our customer says. But as soon as you as an employee has a thought or suggestion, it's almost disregarded because your voice isn't as loud as the customer Mm -hmm. or you don't feel as though you're being taken care of in the same way that that you are being expected to take care of your customers. That's going to burn anyone out and and it's going to feel very superficial of, of we've created this artificial experience for our customers that we ourselves don't really know how that feels. And, and a person can't have real empathy in that situation. They can't over time sustain the quality of work that, that should be there. Um, so what we need to do is, is really create that, that authentic experience internally that can be given. I mean, Denise Leon says it best. It, it is a gift that we can equip our employees to be able to give to our customers. Um, but until they have it, until they experience it for themselves, there's nothing to give. It's all fake. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. I like the expression. It's all fake. So if an organization is struggling and they've got employees or maybe just one or two employees who are hitting that burnout stage or what I sometimes refer to as capabilities readiness level three, where they're just burned out, they've got knowledge, but they've lost the will to really deliver that service. Yeah. What are some things that management leadership groups can do to really revive that and really drive that customer experience to the employee. So the employee then is revitalized to deliver that experience to the customer. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of pulse surveys and understanding the state of your culture and the state of your employee through good, very relevant, timely feedback. 
through, through a series of pulse surveys. So I love using Office Vibe. Tiny Pulse does it. There's a, a Qualtrics version of it. Uh, but having something like that in place so that you're not making assumptions about where you really are at culturally as an organization, because I think leaders generally view themselves more optimistically than what the reality is. And, and they tend to, to make positive assumptions about how good the organization really is performing in this area of culture and team building. So take that veil off, take those rose-colored glasses off and look at the organization in an unfettered view and have the courage to do that. Um, that, that, ta- that takes a little bit of courage. Uh, but okay. once you really know <laughs> and, and you can be able to say, wow, you know, we have a systemic culture issue where the majority of our employees are disengaged at some level for some reason. Or, or you can know, as you said, Greg, we have some outliers <laughs> and, and our, we have some detractors here and we need to understand the impact that those detractors are having and we need to restore them. Uh, but that, that clarity that understanding is what comes first before you dive in and try to make any actions or activities. But then it, it really is an issue of restoration. You know, if you have a systemic culture issue where the majority of employees are, are identifying as detractors and are, are disengaged, I mean, it's, it's time for a major overhaul. I had to do it with my bees this morning. Hive one was infested with hive beetles. I had to take that hive apart, put it out in the sun to kill the hive beetles and put them in a smaller box, <laughs> the good brood that was still left, put them in a much smaller box so that they could rebuild and, and create something stronger and better. But I, I knit them together in a small, strong tribe and, and got the, the stuff out that had to get out. That, that is what the organization would have to do. And it's tough. It's terrifying. But th- there is a major change that would need to happen to build the desired culture, the culture that's going to allow you to propel forward. Because you can't move forward well, not over the course of time, if, if you're just limping along in this area of culture and strong teams. So that the faster you can rip the Band-Aid off, the better. But if you, if you have these couple of outliers, these individuals who aren't quite jumping in, they're mm-hmm. sitting on the fence. It's time to push them off the fence, hopefully towards the house where everybody's living in together and they have this great atmosphere inside of the organization there together. Or they've got to be pushed towards another house <laughs> outside of this organization that they can thrive and, and be happy in and having the courage to do that. Uh, but, you know, first, it's a matter of restoration. You know, what, what is it that would allow you to engage the best? Uh, what, what are the roles and responsibilities that help you to come alive? What are your greatest strengths? How can I, as a leader, unlock those for you and not focus on your weaknesses? Let's focus on what you're really good at. Are you still motivated by the unique purpose of this organization? And, and if you're not, then we, we need to guide you to a place where you can be motivated intrinsically. A financial advisor uh, consultant, Dan Sullivan, says, if we focus in on our weaknesses, we'll have strong weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a ton of sense right there. Doesn't it, though? So let's, I want to hit a couple questions on what you just talked about there. First is the poll surveys. Uh, how often do you recommend doing them? Yeah, I mean, so the, the way that like Office Vibe, as an example, would work, um, the employee selects the cadence. It's either once a week or every other week that they get a pulse survey to their mobile device or just their email address. And so it's, it's either once a week or every other week. That allows you to identify if there's an event in the organization that occurs. What, what is it that people feel about that? What impact did that event have on the organization? You can actually be able to see and measure that to some degree in real time. Okay. So that, that works really, really well. 
Uh, and again, some of those polls that you like to use, you said Office Vibe. What are some of the others to make sure listeners can get those? Yeah, Tiny Pulse uh, is great in this area. And, and then I don't know the name of it, but there is a Qualtrics um, internally focused employee pulse survey version as well that, that I'm sure would be an easy Google. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um, again, you're talking about making decisions sometimes that are not real pleasant to do. And you use the example of pushing them off the fence, pushing them to the, uh, the other side. It doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It just means that they're not necessarily a good fit in this group. That is exactly right. There there are unique cultures inside of every organization. And and, uh, another Denise Leonism, let's not think about the organization as a family. Because with a family, even if you don't like someone, you still have to love them. (laughs) And you're stuck together. Like you're just, you're there. You're going to end up uh, having to figure it out. Uh, as a family, is more like a very high-performing sports team. So, I mean, you have an incredible camaraderie. You have phenomenal relationships inside of a winning sports team that's well-managed and everybody has a clear role and they're performing at their highest level. And the intoxicating idea of winning together and everybody performing those roles and the synergy created from that, that that's what a great organization looks like. But occasionally there's somebody that doesn't fit the culture of that team or can't perform that role. And, and a, a great sports team, they're going to make that tough decision. They're going to trade them. And that, that's key is recognizing, recognizing and being able to make those decisions is key. So what is the greatest attribute that somebody can bring to a team, either in general teamology, if you will, I guess that's a word I made up, teamology, or in the CX environment? So the, the strongest attribute of a team. Was that, so was that the question, Greg? Okay. Per, uh, the strongest attribute a person or persons can bring to the team, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, any, I think you'd agree. I mean, any great team starts with trust. <laughs> and, and trust is the bedrock that any person can, can bring to a team. I mean, John Pompey, my, my boss at Officium Labs, he, he's incredible with this. He's like, I'm, I'm going to extend the benefit of the doubt to you. I'm going to trust you until for some reason I'm, I'm proven that that's not what I, what I should be doing. But like, I am going to trust that, that you want to serve this organization really well and you have all of our best interests at heart. And he really does extend that. And you feel that. And of course, what he gets back is great performance. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and that trust is, is reciprocal. Um, so, I mean, a, a person who can ex- extend that trust uh, and, not, and not be stuck in that mode of self-preservation and just always feeling like they have to create a knowledge silo around themselves to protect themselves or that they're always having to be weary of, the, of their coworkers at every, at every turn. Um, you know, if, if you can have a, a team um, where that trust is earned together, and people ex- extend that vulnerability and, and you have those courageous people that are able to trust inside of that team. And then others pick up on that vibe and suddenly everyone together is, is trusting one another. I mean, Simon Sinek, uh, Kim Scott, Patrick Lencioni, you know, the greatest team building authors of our time, they, they talk about how trust is the bedrock of any yeah. great team, but it, but it starts with the individual. <laughs> it absolutely does. And you brought up a key point because you said that uh, your boss there at Officium, he extended that level of trust outwardly from the very beginning. Yeah. Now, I think you'll agree there are some people who will do that. I, for one, am one of those people. I will trust you until you give me a reason not to. 
Now, there's also a lot of people, though, who <laughs> will not trust anybody until you give them a reason to trust. Yeah. So how do we find that? that that's a catch-22. That's a push-give, give-take situation. Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do we get those people engaged and get them to open up a little bit more? Is there something that other people can do? Is there something a leader can do? What do you recommend there? I mean, the, the executive team is generally going to set the tone and, and the culture in this area. You know, if, if they are able to trust and, and extend this level of vulnerability, if, if not everything they do is perfect, if, if they're willing to express uh, some, some mistakes made and some different things and, and, mm-hmm. and expect that, you know, trust is going to be given of, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to make this better. I'm going I'm to fix this. Um, then, then employees take the cue on that. It's like, you know, it's okay if I, if I fail intelligently, <laughs> if I fail the same way every time, then you know, something's wrong here. But, you know, if, 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 if our executive team can, can have trust to one another that they don't have to do their jobs perfectly or they don't have to cover up mistakes, then that sends a powerful message throughout the ranks of the organization in terms of, wow, we can, we can be ourselves here. We, we can take some educated chances and, and if we fail intelligently, it's okay. I don't have to hide that. I don't have to protect myself from my peers. I, I've went, I've learned, I have learned. And therefore, even in my failure, I have won. And therefore the next attempt I make is going to be better and smarter. And this organization will be better for it. Now you bring up some great points and I agree with everything you're saying. My question is, let's assume that we're now in a management role and you're interviewing somebody yeah. who's coming from another organization. Okay. You don't know their level of trust. Sure. And how do you bring that into play? How can you find out, how can you chat with them um, and get that in an interview process? Yeah. I mean, I like to just see how somebody is putting themselves out there. And, and not every, every organization is going to be looking for these just open-hearted, incredibly gregarious, very extroverted people. You know, a, a lot of great organizations that that's not the culture that you've created there. And, and in even those attributes right there, that's not necessarily um, any measure of the quality of a person. <laughs> but what, what I'm, what I'm not saying is like somebody who just, you know, is, is just foolhardy in terms of rushing in and just trusting everything that's going on and just being super excited about all the weird stuff that, that's happened. That, that's not the kind of person I'm talking about. The kind of person that, that I'm talking about here is the person who is willing to put themselves out there to, to serve their community in, in the type of ways already that the organization wants to serve the community. <laughs> I okay. mean, that, that's somebody that you can trust to, with your mission, with, with your unique calling as an organization. You can trust them to want to do that well because they're already demonstrating that in their lifestyle, out, out into the world, and in, in the types of interactions that they have with people, that that's already the way that they represent themselves. That that's going to be more telling in terms of that, that level of intelligence that you can gain around a candidate, which you can <laughs> by asking the right questions and just probing into the, the types of ways that they serve and understanding what matters to them. Where do you spend your time? <laughs> Even beyond your working hours, what matters to you well? And if you can line up those motivators with the type of work this person is going to be doing, you you've, you've found a great fit for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you can line up the motivators of what really gets people going um, 
and why they do it. And of course, that goes back to someone you just mentioned a moment ago, Simon Sinek, and starts with why. Once we find out why people are motivated, what stimulates them, and we find out if that's going to be a good fit within our organization. There are sometimes that's something that's more of the gregarious type that you or I might be, might not fit very well in some organizations. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Those are the things that we have to recognize. Yeah. I mean, somebody could be perceived as being trusting because they express their opinion a lot. That's, that's not the same thing. (laughs) They they, they might be expressing an opinion very contrary to the type of culture and the, and the type of environment that you're trying to build inside of that organization. So it's important Mm -hmm. to identify more than the way this person behaves and acts. It's identifying what, what matters to this individual? What are they going to fight for? What are they going to protect? And are those the same things for us as an organization? Right. And when we stop to think about what, what they're doing, and you used a key word a little earlier as well, you talked about vulnerability trust. Of course, that's a key word that Patrick Lencioni uses. Yeah. It's not just predictive trust, it's vulnerability trust. Mm-hmm. So that brings me to the question, is how can you get that Okay, from the, the, the customer experience officer that you are? Yeah. How can you get that peer-to-peer experience level going. What do you do? Give me some hard examples of what you've done to get them to be able to build that vulnerability trust peer-to-peer. Well, it definitely starts by listening. Together, as an organization, you're listening to so one another. So you as the leader are have to make sure you're listening. Yeah. Okay. But, but I mean, even at, even at the peer-to-peer level. So, I mean, active listening is taking place. Okay. As, as expressions are happening, as, as people are working through challenging situations together, and there's opportunities for you to work better together, somebody has the ability inside of the organization to express when, when they're sad or frustrated or, or if, if things aren't being optimized in terms of that working relationship, they can express those opinions and they can be respected for that. And, and adjustments when appropriate can be made. I mean, that, that, that is a high performing team right there. If feedback can be given, <laughs> punches are having to be pulled, uh, and, and people are doing that respectfully, that they're doing it regularly in a timely fashion. I mean, th- that's where trust comes from more than anything else, is that I, I, know, I know you, I care about you, I, I can tell you when something's going on, and, and I know that I'm safe to do that, and that you value what, what I'm expressing to you, and you're going to do your best to make this scenario better for both of us. Right. That's where trust comes from at the beginning. And that trust starts to lead into builds better open communication. I mean, you start with the open communication, the act of listening. It starts there. And then when people feel that they've been heard, then even if their decision may not be the one that's chosen, then they will more than likely still be a stronger committed individual. Am I right with you on that? They've been respected. They, they know that their opinion was valued and they understand because it was explained to them why maybe another, another choice was made. But even in like an interpersonal level, <laughs> like if, if it just really, really bothers me, something about our, our working relationship where it, it's distracting or, or it's not leading to the best possible outcome for the customer. I mean, it, it's very rare inside of an organization that, that somebody would truly be able to express that. And, and the, this person wouldn't just get really upset about it and immediately start bad-mouthing that person to their peers. And then you get the knife stab and going on. I mean, culture just deteriorates 
Uh, it doesn't take long to deteriorate. No, I mean, it, it, it's an incredibly high-performing team. If, if I could give you, Greg, feedback on something that I truly feel like you could be doing better in, in, in our relationship, in your relationship with your peers, in your relationship to our customers together, if I can give you that feedback and you take that in and really think about that and, and value that and respect me in that process, man, that, that is, and, and it's the same thing with customers. <laughs> if we can listen to our customers and we can make adjustments and value them and respect them in, in that process of getting to know them and furthering that relationship and developing that partnership, it's the same thing here. Now, what if, this is a hypothetical, what if you're giving me feedback mm-hmm. and I'm not taking it well? I feel like you are, in your words here now, pulling the knife out on me. You're sure. not, but I perceive you are. Yeah. What's happened? What's caused that? And it may be very early on, or it may be something that's happened. What's caused that? Well, I mean, if, if you're in an environment where you aren't aligned on the things that matter, I mean, th- this is going back to what we were talking about before, Greg. If, if you're working inside of a high-performing team, where people are aligned on mm-hmm. the things that you're trying to do as an organization. You are uniquely serving the community. You're serving the world in a way that no one else can. That, that gives you a common ground on which it would be appropriate when and how to offer up some feedback. If, if somebody is holding back the group from accomplishing that objective, they'd want to know that because, because we care. We care about what we're doing. And, and if I am somehow holding that back, then I need to know, and I, I'm going to be hungry to understand and to learn how I can perform better inside of this wonderful organization. But generally, that's not the way it's perceived. That's not the way people think about it because they're not aligned. They don't care that much. So as soon as I yeah, start they're saying, feedback, I'm here to do a job, shut up, leave me alone. Yeah. Like just get off my back. Like I'm, I'm going to do this how I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the feedback is being perceived as personal. You, you don't like me. You don't like this thing about me. And I'm just going to want to push you away. Just get away from me. And, and you're going to want to try and isolate that person and protect yourself by getting the tribe around you mm-hmm. and isolating that other person. This is human nature. This is just what we do. And it happens immediately. But a great organization that is aligned and cares more about what you together are trying to accomplish than, than these individual things, then, then people are going to know when to give feedback <laughs> because it really matters because it matters to, to this macro thing. Not, not because I don't, I don't like that you drink coffee in the morning and then have to go take a bathroom break for 20 minutes. I, I'm not going to give you feedback on that because right. that doesn't matter to this overall mission up here. Right. I mean, there's so many petty things that people obsess over because they're not focused on what really matters. So if we together are focused on these things that matter, then you're going to give feedback that matters and people are going to see that they're going to respect that they're going to respond well. So before you're saying a word to a coworker, why, why is it that I I feel like I need to say something to this individual? Am I protecting a customer in this? Am I assisting the organization to, to continue to foster the, the great culture that we have? Or is this just something personal with me? And if it's just something personal with me, you probably don't need to say it. Right. But now if it's, if it is personal, if you're giving me feedback and you're giving it to me correctly, Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Whether you're a peer to peer or a supervisor to a subordinate, it doesn't matter. And I'm taking it personally. I'm not necessarily going to acknowledge it's a personal thing. I'm still going to push the blame back on you. What can you as a manager then start to do, or you as a peer start to do to bring that culture back together? Yeah. I mean, it's alignment. It's focusing people back on the things that matter. Okay. It's, it's helping. It's giving them skills. I mean, people need to have communication skills. <laughs> you might, you might have some people that, that really care and, and really have great focus on the things that matter, but their ability to communicate in the day to day sucks. And, and you got to help that individual to know. Can you say that again? That it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's great education out there. I used to be a trainer inside of UL around the area of effective communication. There's great tools and capabilities to, to equip individuals in, in this area of communication skill. So when, once you've got some of that going and, and you'll know, you know, you know, as a leader, when it's a communication issue or if it's bigger than that, if it's a motivation issue. If it's an issue of people not caring or just having no respect for their coworkers, that's deeper and that's going to be harder to work on, but you still can. So in the world of the pandemic, and I'm not sure where officium is, but with so many people working from home and the ability to work from home, different news stories about people now like, hey, I'm, I'm done. People are moving. They know I can do a job almost anywhere. Yeah. So- how are you able to keep people, A, motivated, keep the culture alive, keep the people stimulated, keep the communication lines up? How are you able to do that through this environment we're in today? Yeah, Officium is very, very good at this. You know, we've got great, great leadership with Scott McCabe and with Jonathan Schroer, they, who really are very intentional about creating meaningful work and accomplishing something special together. And I think that more than anything is what unifies individuals, regardless of where they are in the world. And we do have people all over the world in the UK and in Sweden and in India and quite a few folks in the States, but we are very decentralized, even in the States. My boss is in Nevada. Uh, our CEO, Jonathan is, is out in California and we've got a good little contingent out here on the East coast. Um, so the, the way that we can really come together and find common ground on the things that we're doing is just fostering excitement about our ability to accomplish our mission of, in our case, creating incredible customer experiences. We're helping our customers to win. <laughs> and, and we're doing that in a way that nobody else can do. And, and so we're relying on one another for, for those, those capabilities, uh, those unique skills that bring us together as a team uh, that help us to, to bring an outcome to, to our customers that nobody else can achieve in the, in the same way that we do it. That, that's a glue. That's titanium, you know. That's yeah. that's strong stuff, and it doesn't matter where somebody's sitting or what time zone they're in. Uh, you it's, know, I'm, it's I'm gonna, results driven. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's definitely results driven. I, I think that you know that idea of meaningful work, that intrinsic motivating factor, you know, that that's going to be more uniting than anything else. But you do want to the best you can just create shared experiences with your people, give them an opportunity to develop relationship. And we, we've got a great virtual hub in Gathertown. It's like a virtual uh, headquarter environment and, and people can come in there and just hang out. We did a book club in there where we were going through the effortless experience together and, and learning together. You know, that's another very galvanizing force is, is the idea of we're developing together. We're getting smarter together. You know, you're going to really enjoy, 
sorry, <laughs> you're going to really enjoy getting to do that inside of a cohort of individuals. Uh, if, if you're becoming more intelligent, you're getting new skills that you can use to creatively serve your customers. You're going to be excited together to, to do that. So that, that's another thing that, that we definitely do inside of Officium. So, I mean, there's levers that you can pull uh, regardless of, of how decentralized you are. Um, think about how you can bring people together with shared experiences and think about how you can create meaningful work for them. Allow them to win together as a team and then just get them addicted to that, that uh, oxytonin feeling of, uh, of serving the community very well together. You've, you've said something, a word there. I want to go back and just make sure I'm clear on where you're coming from using the term. Use the word gather town. Yeah. Okay. Is that something at officium? No, it's, it's just a tool that, that's out there. It's actually Veronica, same person that gave me the shirt that, that introduced us to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a cool little uh, like 8-bit uh, character game environment where, where you, come, you come in and you can create this unique space for, for your organization or school or association or whatever. Okay. And people can come in and it, what, it, what it creates is organic collisions. Because uh, as or, soon I'm as sorry, you come I'm into sorry. proximity, it, it creates organic collisions. Okay. Um, which is what we miss in the office, right? You know, I, I don't get to run into Greg when he's on his way to get some tea. Uh, mm-hmm. And we don't get to have that great conversation we would have had. Well, in Gathertown, if you're surfing around and navigating and on your way to a meeting in, in one of the classrooms or something like that, you, you could run into Greg. And then the video window pops up and, and you all are talking in, in an organic collision type of format. That's impressive. It is cool. <laughs> That is really cool because the number one thing I've heard over the last year is we don't have those water cooler discussions. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a way to create some of those. It is. It is. You know, and in the past you've had to say, Hey, let's meet at the water cooler and have a talk. Then it's a little more forced. It's not as organic. Yep. And that's, that gets to be a little bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit if we can about this, the term tribe, and that's going to be a very popular term today is getting yes. the tribes together. And then also um, the brain and how you mentioned oxytocin earlier, the cortisol levels of the brain, how all that comes out when we're in, feeling like we're part of a tribe. Yeah. And no, I, I have been reading uh, two books in, in tandem with one another, uh, Tribal Leadership, and then Simon Sinek's uh, Leaders Eat Last. And it's amazing how harmonious the, these concepts are. Uh, I mean, you, you have the idea of tribal leadership where if, if you have a group and it needs to be definitely under like 150 people, but, but you've created an environment in which individuals can learn one another's names, learn some unique attributes about them, and, and truly get to know that person, at least at some level. You know, the, the closer, the better. <laughs> but, but you together form a tribe in which you're, you're somewhat self-sustaining. You know, there, there's different roles and responsibilities in that tribe. You know who to go to for information very quickly. Um, you, you, you know that together, this is what you're trying to achieve. You're held to this standard or, or the accountability is happening inside of that tribe. As soon as you go past that magic number of like 150, you, you can't get to know people. You can't remember things about them. It becomes too big. It's too much like I'm a machine. I'm surprised 150 is not too big. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of with our brains, you know, we can juggle up to about that number. And, and you've got the, the, the best tribes that are out there in, in tribal leadership are those where they're so unified, they're so galvanized together 
that they're protecting one another. They're protecting the outcomes of the tribe. They put the needs of the tribe above their own needs and, and magic happens. I mean, th these are the best organizations in the world that are able to create these tribes inside of the organization that can holistically achieve these phenomenal outcomes. Uh, so then in tandem, you got Simon Sinek out here, again, talking about the tribe concept and how our brains used to work and how we had to create these tribes to survive as, as human beings <laughs> long, long ago. And, and the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is to be isolated outside of the tribe because you have no protection. You can't rely on others to give you the things that you need or to get the things that, that you have to have to survive. So we, we immediately organize ourselves into tribes for, for protection. Uh, otherwise, our, as you mentioned, the cortisol levels just go skyrocketing up. As soon as we perceive that our tribe is out to get us or that we've been isolated, there, there's about nothing more terrifying in the human experience than that. So we're, we're immediately trying to get back into the tribe or find a different tribe where we can be secured and protected. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, this is this is how great teams are built. It, mm -hmm. It's awareness of this concept of we have to create a tribe that can be somewhat self-sustaining where people can go deep with one another. And then we have to protect that circle of safety, that circle of trust inside of that tribe, because as soon as people drop out or become isolated, the fire starts to burn. Bad things happen. Yeah. And, you know, when you pop a hole in something, more oxygen gets in, more oxygen gets in, the bigger the fire becomes. Bummer, yeah. And it's it, that goes back to, if we want to take it back to another simple thought, is uh, Maslow's hierarchy. You know, getting a sense of belonging is part of that tribe, and it's so important. Yeah, uh, it, it all will at some point come back to that hierarchy, and it, it is very, very true. If we cannot excel inside of an organization uh, psychologically, and until those needs are met and until we feel as though we together are, are inside of a circle of trust, a circle of safety, where we can then look outside of ourselves and, and not feel as though I'm about to be destroyed. I'm about to get a knife in my back. You know, I, we have to excel beyond, uh, beyond that stage to, to win the customer experience game. This is why so few organizations are great at customer experience because they're so focused internally, they're still trying to build that layer of trust and that circle of safety. And they're so focused on that, it, it's almost impossible for them at any point to start to really focus on how can we knock it out of the park for our customers? It, it's a great organization that gets to that point. That's, you just really hit some key issues all right there when you talk about not letting ourselves get stabbed in the back from our own teams. And that's so powerful. If we were to think right now, what is one of the biggest or what is the single biggest challenge facing the customer experience service today? What would you say it is? Short-term thinking. People, people don't give customer experience a chance to really take root and change the fiber of the organization and, and alter the culture. CX change is culture change, as Annette Franz says. And it takes time uh, for, for people's mentalities and their everyday behaviors to change in a way that will result in a more favorable customer experience. Most leaders do not have the appetite to do CX well and to do it long enough to where it can truly take root and make a difference. It becomes a quarterly priority. It becomes an experiment 
that was tested for a couple months and ultimately failed, uh, they, they've got to break out of that short-term mentality and mm-hmm. think about CX is the thing. There is no finish line. This is what we do to over time excel and become the competitive differentiator for us. It's, it's ongoing. It is. And that's true. So if you were to say, how long would it take for an organization to start to see some recognizable or noticeable differences in the culture when they start to do, if they've never done the true CX experiment? Yeah. Okay. If you mentioned that they, they won't, they can't stomach it long enough. They, they give it three months and it's not enough. You know that I know that if you're talking about an organization that's got maybe two, three, 400 employees, not, not the huge companies. Yeah. Okay. How long does it take for something to take where they start to see noticeable change? Mm -hmm. Well, if you, if you follow a good change management methodology and I love John Coder when it comes to CX change. So he's got the leading change methodology. So inside of that, you're, you're beginning by establishing a sense of urgency you're making the whole company realize we cannot continue on the path that we're on. We can't keep doing this to ourselves or to our customers. And you got to light the fire in terms of we have to make a change. And until people are motivated to do something different than what they have done every day for these past number of years, you're, you're already dead. <laughs> so there, there has it's to be a fire starter moment. Uh, what, what is that? And then you morph into that stage two of let's create a CX change coalition that is cross-functional, that includes representation from every part of the organization. And and then you get into the actual strategic vision and the communication of that vision and getting people involved and embedded into that change management cycle around customer experience change. So when you do stages like this intelligently using that coder model, so as an example, um, you, you earn the right for the employee to take the journey with you to the next stage. Because as an example, you started to listen to them differently. You started to do pulse surveys. So no, you can't yet say, wow, we've generated this amount of revenue impact because of our CX initiative. But, but you've earned the right to go to the next stage, developing a better customer voice engine okay. or employee voice engine, where all of a sudden you're listening more and people start to feel heard. We had a little hiccup in the video and the line there for a second. We lost you. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, is it better now? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I mean, so you, you got to earn the right to move people to the next stage of the change transformation. So in, in the idea of this like leading change model and, and as a CX perspective on it, I mean, when you start listening, as an example, you start listening well and using like a voice of customer engine or an employee pulse survey cadence, suddenly people are embedded and involved and they feel as though they're being heard, then you've earned the right to go to the next stage. Okay, let's start to identify those one or two mentalities or behaviors that we can change together that will result in a better customer experience and start to measure that. Then we start to change these bigger things. It's like spaghetti noodles. You know, you can't pull one of them out in a customer journey that's holistic. As soon as you try to take out one friction point or one problem, you, you get the whole bowl. <laughs> yeah. So it, you got to be really smart about your approach and, and so that you're not overwhelming people, you're, you're not frustrating them, but you're developing their appetite and showing you're getting some quick wins. You're finding the one or two spaghetti noodles that aren't attached to the entire bowl and proving to them, we can win. 
we can make some changes in this area. Then you get to start to eat the whole bowl. And that's powerful. You know, time has flown by here, Nate. We're just, uh, we, you and I could chat about this for another hour two or three, I'm sure. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, there's no doubt. And it's always a pleasure to have uh, the opportunity to chat with you. You know, once a week on the Teamwork Advantage, you learn exactly multiple ideas that you could implement right away. And today was no exception. Nate Brown with Officium Labs shared with us a bunch of ideas that we can start to implement, start to put into place. Starting with short-term thinking, eliminating it, look long-term, see what you can do. One of the first things, let's start thinking about ways we can do poll surveys. There's a number of things that Nate shared with us today. And once a week, you've got ideas on where you can be. The Teamwork Advantage, we recognize that you are not normal. So don't have a normal day. Don't have a good day. Be sure to make it an excellent and exceptional day. Until next week, we'll see you then on the Teamwork Advantage. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.